Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, August 14th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. It's a bit of a sad day for us here at NMPBS as we start the first week without our longtime host, Gene Grant. If you didn't catch it Friday, Gene signed off during his final episode saying goodbye to all of you and moving on to a new position with Animal Protection New Mexico. Gene's been passionate about animal welfare for as long as I've known him, so we're happy for him, but of course we're sad to have such an integral part of our team leave us. I've personally felt lucky to have worked with Gene for the nearly two years that I've been with New Mexico in Focus. He's been a great role model in this industry, and it's been a thrill to watch him as the maestro of the line each week. I'm going to miss him, and I know the rest of our team feels the same way. In about 25 minutes, we'll hear from Gene one last time during a farewell interview with KUNM's Nash Jones. But for now, let's get right into the headlines. Officials say last weekend's fire at an Albuquerque plastics facility released hazardous pollutants into the air. According to Albuquerque Fire Rescue, the blaze was fueled by high-density polyethylene. Ourland's Laura Paskus spoke with the city's environmental health director, who said that when HDPE burns, it releases hydrocarbons, known to be toxic and carcinogenic. Meanwhile, the state environment department told Laura that follow-up analysis will confirm whether HDPE indeed burned in Sunday's fire. Particulates and organic compounds known as SVOCs would also have been a concern for people in the area while smoke spread, according to the New Mexico Environment Department, and the state will oversee monitoring. The company that owned the building, ATCOR, will be responsible for cleanup and any health impacts to the public and first responders. It's still too early to know if there will be any long-term impacts to things like crops or livestock exposed to the toxic smoke, but the state says that there will be soil and water sampling. You can read more in Laura's Hourland Weekly newsletter. A federal lawsuit is accusing the state's Children, Youth, and Families Department of placing a seven-year-old girl and her brother in the custody of their biological father, even though he had been investigated for physically abusing the girl in the past. Three months after that reunification, her body was found in a trash can outside his home. The Albuquerque Journal lays out the backstory of this case, starting in April 2020 when the two children, ages nine and seven, suddenly lost their mother. That's when CYFD decided to send them from Clovis to Carlsbad to live with their father, Juan Lerma. The lawsuit alleges they were left isolated, without access to help or oversight from the agency. The young girl, Samantha, was found beaten to death three months later. Lerma was sentenced to life in prison last year, convicted of first-degree child abuse resulting in death and tampering with evidence. Samantha's 11-year-old brother testified at trial with a stress ball and an emotional support animal, saying Lerma once starved him and abused them both several times. The boy told the jury the day Samantha died, her beating was worse than normal, lasting for hours, and at one point she fell and didn't get back up. The federal lawsuit alleges CYFD workers knew or should have known Lerma was dangerous but ignored their own rules and their own evidence. CYFD isn't admitting any wrongdoing, saying their action to reunite the children with their father was in good faith. The Journal reports Samantha's brother now lives with his maternal grandparents in Texas. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is reversing the sudden cancellation of the state's Medicaid procurement process. The decision comes after an investigation by the State Ethics Commission, which revealed the cancellation might have violated the state procurement code. Instead of going to court, the Lujan Grisham administration and the Ethics Commission came together to reach a settlement, with retired State Supreme Court Justice Judith Nakamura mediating discussions. 
The Albuquerque Journal reports the state's Human Services Department denies wrongdoing and plans to move ahead with contracts for the original companies selected. That's Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Mexico, United Healthcare, Molina Healthcare of New Mexico, and Presbyterian Health Plan. Those contracts officially start next July. Another company, Western Sky Community Care, will not be awarded a contract, even though it helps run the state's Medicaid program right now. Each year, the state spends about $8 billion in state and federal money to provide health care for lower-income families and individuals through Medicaid. The movie Oppenheimer continues to set box office records weeks after its release date. Gene and The Line talked about the film the week after it was released, and you heard an interview from correspondent Russell Contreras with Tina Cordova, the founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, who has for decades been lobbying for recognition and compensation from the federal government. And here's a little update on that story. Since Russell's interview, Cordova's long struggle took a step forward toward action when the U.S. Senate passed a bill that would compensate downwinders. Today on the podcast, we continue to explore New Mexico connections to the film and the Manhattan Project. Sadly, the downwinders aren't the only people who've had to live through the deadly and toxic legacy of nuclear testing in our state, including tribal nations. Correspondent Antonia Gonzalez sat down with Leona Morgan, a Navajo woman who's been involved in the anti-nuclear movement for years. In this podcast exclusive, Antonia asks about the impacts of uranium mining on the Navajo Nation and gets her reaction to the film. Leona, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you for having me. And you're a longtime grassroots advocate, advocating for the health of Navajo people, land, and water. Tell me a little bit about some of the work you've been doing. Uh, sure, yeah. We, um, I used to work for an organization called Eastern Navajo Diné against uranium mining. And um, I was so proud to say in 2014 we stopped a new uranium mine. Um, since November last year, that mining project has moved forward a little bit. So that's one, uh, one of the issues that I'm keeping a, an eye on. Um, there's also uranium cleanup all over Navajo, and then there's some cleanup that should be happening in the state of New Mexico as well. But um, what I've really been focusing on the last six years is Holtec, this, this proposal to build a nuclear waste site here. Um, and then just keeping a bird's eye view on most of the nuclear projects in the state and how it affects indigenous people. And how has um, mining, such as uranium, impacted Navajo people, water, land, um, and your work on the Navajo Nation? Uh, the mining that was done on Navajo um, starting in the late 30s and arguably, you know, whatever's happening today is all in the name of either nuclear energy or nuclear weapons. And so nuclear weapons um, was the main reason why we started to mine. But today, it's um, both weapons and energy. And so Navajo Nation has been mined not only to fuel World War II and the Cold War, but basically the United States imperial arsenal of nuclear weapons, along with other indigenous nations across the country and the world. So uranium is mined on indigenous lands, we estimate at least 70% of the time worldwide. So the impacts that we're feeling on Navajo such as contaminated land and water and air, which impacts our, our human health and then also our food resources and then um, the impacts to our future generations are still being studied. So we're not sure of the long-term implications, 
but this is happening all over the world wherever uranium is being mined, um, not just through the extraction of the ore body, but right now we're also looking at ISL mining, which is, it's not fracking, but it's basically extracting um, directly out of the aquifer. And so there's extraction, processing, and then all of the different steps into leading into the fuel fabrication, um, as well as in, you know, here in New Mexico, we have enrichment and several steps of the nuclear fuel chain. We don't have a nuclear power plant here, but we have two national labs and then the waste isolation pilot plant, which is weapons for weapons waste. But right now we're looking at also uh, a new weapons, I'm, I'm sorry, a new waste facility, which is which was just licensed in May. I don't think that facility will ever open. I'm talking about the Holtec proposal. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of impacts to our people, even though Navajo is not located all over the state, there's indigenous nations that were impacted from Los Alamos. Um, the people down south where the waste sites are, um, there's indigenous peoples whose lands were stolen there. And then just being in New Mexico, all New Mexicans are impacted by this. And what is the state of uranium on the Navajo Nation today? Um, there's been some meetings between, well, maybe you can explain that a little bit, between the federal government and Navajo communities. Um, well, right now, the Navajo Nation has a law against uranium mining, which is only on Navajo Nation proper. So if anyone is familiar with the checkerboard area, this does not include uh, parcels of land that were taken to build a railroad or during the Dawes Act or um, just along the, the path of uh, colonization when our lands were taken by private entities or the state or the federal government. We have all these different land statuses in northwestern New Mexico that make it incredibly difficult for the Navajo Nation to enforce its laws. So there's, since 2002, the Dineth Natural Resources Protection Act, which says no new mining on the Navajo Nation. Um, but it's, like I said, there's a lot of loopholes um, in the jurisdiction. And then in 2012, um, the Navajo Nation passed a law uh, against transport of new uranium. So that transportation law does not prohibit cleanup, but it's more for production of uranium. So even though we have this ban or the moratorium on uranium mining as well as the transportation law, there is a Canadian company right now doing exploration near Church Rock, uh, close to where the 1979 Church Rock spill happened. And so we are looking at this as illegal drilling. Uh, there's a lot of um, agreements the previous companies had made with the Navajo Nation to do cleanup before new mining would occur which this new company is not respecting, uh, something we call the temporary access agreement. However, just in a nutshell, there's no new mining and the US EPA is working with Navajo EPA and several other agencies to clean up what they identify as 523 abandoned uranium mines. So we say AUM for short, but this number, it's, um, it's, a, it's identified by the federal government. It's not a true count of all of the contamination on Navajo. And so across the country, um, arguably there's at least 15,000 abandoned uranium mines, but on Navajo, they're looking at cleaning up these 523 and the, the course of cleanup is being led mostly 
from a top-down effort of the federal, the federal government telling the Navajo Nation what to do and what the limitations are. Um, yesterday I was at a meeting regarding uranium cleanup. Um, in this situation, the federal government is telling the communities you have two options, a no-action alternative or the alternative to clean up one community north of Church Rock by bringing the waste into through uh, an area that's not contaminated currently. So essentially, it's history repeating itself where the federal government is dictating what should be done on our lands, making decisions without the local people at the table. And so the course of cleanup over the last, um, since the Waxman hearings in 2007, has been inadequate. Um, it's been very top-down, not including the community people at the table, but there's also no clear standards. There's no clear information from the federal government what they're doing. Um, they give presentations, but a lot of the slides are not available online. Um, so it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult for anyone following these issues to come to one place like a central reservoir, either online or a physical location, and, and get up to date with all of the cleanup, either in Eastern, Western Agency or Eastern Agency, because Navajo Nation is huge and there's a lot of cleanup happening all across the reservation, but there's no clear way for community people to input unless they're already involved with the federal government. So someone like me or any Diné resident who wants to learn about these issues, it takes a lot of work to find out what's going on. And so the previous Navajo EPA executive director, Daryl Yazzie, he was quite vocal about how he was opposing the federal government dictating to Navajo what they can and cannot do. Um, but he's no longer in, in his position. And so when people become vocal and, and speak out, um, they lose their jobs. And so in places like, let's say, um, around Los Alamos, a lot of the tribes there, are their hands are tied because of agreements with DOE or DOD. And so I'm not sure with Navajo Nation um, why it is so hard to do the cleanup that we need. Right now, a lot of it maybe um, they say it's gonna be too expensive or um, a lot of it is based on funding. And so it's really confusing to me um, that the federal government can't clean up the mess they made when they're putting trillions into making more waste through its weapons complex. And following these issues like you do and being aware and going to different meetings, have you seen any justice or do you see justice for Native people impacted by these issues, whether it's an acknowledgement or cleanup or compensation? No, I think um, there's non-Native communities where the federal government has, um, you know, they've done complete cleanup by moving huge piles of waste in, in, in white neighborhoods or in places where water resources might be at risk. But these are not on the Navajo Nation. And so I, I don't think in anywhere in the world there has been cleanup to pre-mining conditions. And so when you say justice, um, first, we think about human justice. We think about the people and what they want. And most people who had 
been impacted by uranium mining were not given first the information. They were not educated before the mining started. So a free prior informed consent was not there. A lot of times the background radiation levels were not recorded. So how can you determine if the cleanup is just? So for me, I think the just thing would be to not do uranium mining. When a community says no, the federal government needs to listen and, and not make the mess to begin with because there has never been any justice for the cleanup, for nuclear experiments on human lives, for the waste piles that are blowing all over the country. And, and the, the saddest thing is our relatives, many of our relatives have died not knowing that they died from radiation exposure or as a victim of the Cold War or, you know, basically for something they had no idea, they did not consent to. And these issues are, you know, being talked about a little bit, a little bit more with the new Oppenheimer movie being released. Um, you saw it, what were your thoughts? I went to see the movie um, because um, as a person who works on uranium mining, my focus is more on the, the human impact at, we, we call uranium mining the front end of the nuclear fuel chain. And the back end is the nuclear waste. And so I actually, I'm not an, I'm not an expert on the weapons complex. I'm very aware of the uranium coming from Africa, from Shinkolobwe uranium mine, where people were mining it with their hands. So we talk about the injustices to Diné uranium miners, but imagine the injustices to people in Africa, like today we're hearing about the cobalt, the cobalt mining by children. So the mining that occurred for the Manhattan Project was incredibly dirty and, and, and contaminating and, and went unaccounted for the governments and the industries don't even mention Shinkaloba uranium mine. And so I want to start there. I mean, we can go all the way back to the doctrine of discovery and the tools of colonization that we are aware of today re that resulted in the stealing of our lands. And so going back to the Oppenheimer movie, they took the uranium from Africa. It traveled all over the country to be processed. And they finished the project here um, on stolen lands. And this is something that many people don't know that the first test was also here in New Mexico. And so the people, um, the downwinders of the Trinity test, they were never acknowledged, informed, apologized to, or compensated you know, by the federal government for using not just their lands, but basically making them guinea pigs in this first nuclear test. And so when I saw the Oppenheimer movie, I was just looking for any evidence of uranium mining or evidence of New Mexico. I mean, besides the beautiful landscape, um, I think the actor's belt buckle was maybe a silver belt buckle made by some native person. Other than that, it was complete erasure of the theft of land, the environmental impacts, the, the history, not just in New Mexico, but across the world and the country of those that were impacted by the Manhattan Project who are still impacted today. 
Um, it also didn't talk about the deaths in Japan. The people who, you know, some of them were vaporized and, and the things that happened there, the atrocities were completely left out of the movie. July 16th is the anniversary of uh, the Trinity test. So on July 16th, there's people in New Mexico that remember that day because it's the first day there was a nuclear test. On July 16th, 1979, was a church rock spill. So we have two nuclear disasters that are remembered in two parts of the state on the same day. And then a couple weeks later in Japan, they have their, their commemoration on August 6th and August 9th. All of these were left out of the Oppenheimer film, um, the human impact, and then the, the, the other things I saw from the movie were just the, not just the erasure, but the extractive nature of colonial forces, such as taking not just the resources and the physical uh, materials to make the bomb, but Oppenheimer was in love with New Mexico. He loved this land. He wanted to combine physics and, and, and New Mexico was, you know, one of the lines in the movie. And I remember cringing when he said that. It, it hurts, you know, inside my body. I, I don't know how many times during the movie, I was, the theater was completely filled. I, I was feeling like so many emotions, but you know, you're, you're in a public space. And so the, the hurt, the anger, the rage. Um, there was a lot of emotions that I felt throughout the movie, um, but I think a lot of it, um, there, the bottom line is I wasn't surprised. There was no surprise that Hollywood, uh, a film written, created by, uh, what, what I, what I wanna say is that this, this film is basically rooted in white supremacy and is continuing the status quo of erasing the true nature, the true history of our country in order to perpetuate more nuclear violence. Well, thank you for sharing your, your views on the movie and also just giving us a little history of, of the impacts of not only the Navajo Nation, but other indigenous people here and around the world. And um, before, before we end our conversation, just a little bit about the Radiation Exposure, Exposure Compensation Act. Um, this is something that you're watching. In the film, they leave out a lot of the human impact. So the people of the Marshall Islands, the Western Shoshone, a lot of the different stages of the, the bomb. Um, the film does not include any of the human impacts. So I, I don't know if you saw the film, but there's uh, these marbles they use to, they put it in a jar to, to celebrate how much plutonium was produced at Hanford. And so they have like, I don't know if you've watched the film, but there's two, there's two glasses. And so in one glass, they put a marble in for how much uranium they've produced. And in, in another jar, they put in a marble for how much plutonium they produced. When they were dropping in those marbles and all of the actors were celebrating, to me, that was representing, if you know how much uranium it takes just to produce one little marble, or maybe one little pellet that's in a nuclear fuel rod. The amount of uranium is huge. To get that much uranium, there's 
probably thousands of tons of radioactive waste left behind at the mine site. Contaminated water they used to process that uranium at the mill site. All of that contamination that is erased, I can see it in those little marbles. All of that suffering, all of that cancer, and, and those people were never compensated. That's what was left out of the movie. I mean, people just see marbles because they're probably made of glass. But the reality is, those are people's lives. Those are our families in New Mexico. That's how many deaths that were not accounted for. <clears throat> right now, there's uh, this thing called the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. Um, in New Mexico, like I said, we have several facilities. There was so many nuclear facilities. We're a nuclear state, not just the uranium mining and the enrichment I mentioned. But what's happening now in the world is they're looking at developing more nuclear power because they're saying it's going to save us from climate change. And then at Los Alamos National Labs, they want to increase the plutonium pits. So all of these things collectively, it's funny to talk about cleanup. And it's funny to talk about RICA, because RICA is, is just a little Band-Aid on this huge problem that the United States needs to stop creating. So RICA, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, is a fund that was created specifically for people who were impacted by uh, the nuclear weapons uh, development. And, and it includes some people uh, that are eligible for it, and there's a lot of criteria um, to apply for this fund, but Dinep people and other people who were minors or impacted can apply for this fund. However, it was going to sunset last year. And so it's an incredibly important thing for not just Dinep people, but people downwind of the Trinity site, and then also people who worked as uranium miners after 1971 because these people were not included in the first RICA law. Right now, RICA was supposed to sunset last year, and because of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium's work, Post-71 miners and others, Navajo Nation, a lot of entities worked together to extend RICA, but there was only a two-year um, extension. So right now, there's a proposal to extend it for 19 years, which is great. It should be extended in perpetuity, but this extension will include recognition for the downwinders of the first atomic blast, as well as others who were not included in that first RECA package. And right now, it is only an amendment in the defense authorization bill. So the Senate has passed this RECA amendment, amendment, which is great. This is the furthest along that RECA for this particular expansion. However, the House needs to put the same conditions in this defense authorization bill in order to see it pass through Congress. And so it's a good time if people are hoping to get this compensation or want to see that this compensation is passed, this would be a good time for anybody who's concerned to reach out and talk to their elected officials in Congress. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today on New Mexico PBS. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Antonio, for covering this important topic. Thank you to Antonia and Leona Morgan for that interview. You just got to hear their full conversation. 
Now, this Friday on New Mexico in Focus, we'll air an excerpt of it, along with a discussion that you won't hear on the podcast until next week, about a new restorative justice pilot program being used in a growing number of New Mexico schools. That's Friday night at 7 p.m. on NMPBS, or any time after that on the PBS app. Now, I can't pass up the opportunity for you to hear just a little bit more from our longtime host here at New Mexico in Focus, Gene Grant. After taping his final episode of the show for us on Thursday last week, he caught up with Nash Jones from KUNM Radio to talk about his time at our station. The interview begins with Gene responding to a question from Nash about the impact he's had on our audience and community. I would hope that folks would come away with the understanding that there was a, as our Star Trek friends like to say, a prime directive at work here. You know, I had a goal pretty much for every show or every interview. Every time I went in, I would really kind of grind on these things, you know, not just the night before, but if it was an author, especially finishing a book or something, you know, you've done this, of course, the same way now. You just, it just sort of gets in you and then you just, you're ready to go. I would hope folks would understand that there was every effort made for every place that needed illumination that we could as possible through our format at New Mexico PBS. We, we can't do everything, you know, certainly, but there are lots of ways a show like ours can put a spotlight on very serious issues here that need time, that need discussion, that need debate more than anything else before we can make decisions about making policy. And I think that's where the show's impact is part of the New Mexico puzzle here. I'm very proud of what we've been able to, as a team, accomplish over there to be part of that conversation. You know, since your departure was announced, I've been seeing comments and well wishes kind of just pouring in on social media from journalists, newsmakers, viewers alike, many highlighting the way that you have done your work. How would you describe your approach to interviewing and, and facilitating all of these newsworthy conversations? I always got to find an emotional hook, like what's going on here that means something to people. And how I do that is is just to flip the POV as best I can, meaning not just what do people need, what do people want out of this emotionally? Is there something here that will spur someone to action? Is there something I can ask of this interviewee that would make somebody sit up and say, hey, let me take a deeper dive here and what this is all about. Something has to be felt in the gut and um, being part of that process, you do have to have a goal. It's not just a flatline thing. Just thanks for coming in. Thanks for answering my questions. We'll see you next go around. has to be something to take away. You recently hosted a panel discussion on InFocus about the changing ecosystem of journalism. And, you know, there's no doubt that the media landscape has shifted considerably since you started as a television host in 06 and then worked in print before that. How have you observed our role as journalists change over the years and how have you worked to respond to those shifts? I've always tried to be very current with anything tech, stuff like that. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a tech nerd. I worked for tech companies years ago. And I mentioned that because you use it a lot yourself. Technology is a big part of our reporting gathering toolkit now. And so there's ways to stay current and to stay relevant, I think, with the changing arc of the news business. But what's interesting to me, though, Nash, I think what's changed the most is I would say right now we are in a bit of a golden age when it comes to news gathering and reporting here in the metro, in the Albuquerque metro. With the advent of New Mexico in-depth, you know, source New Mexico, there's a lot, I'm getting myself in trouble here by leaving people out, but you know what I mean? There's lots and lots of folks and everybody's supporting each other and trying to get each other to the next level. There's a lot of activity in a younger generation that I very much admire, that I think bodes extremely well. You add in the Santa Fe papers and all the activity up there. It's just a lot of good things are going on right now. 
This is your last week hosting New Mexico in Focus. What can we expect for your final episode? Ah, good fun. We're going to go way back, of course, as you might imagine, in time. And we found some epic early footage, including my first go-round. Awesome. Which was a co-host situation with the wonderful David Aliri Garcia. But also, even before that, a really fun interview I did with the previous host, Kate Nelson. And we talk about the state of journalism. And it's really fascinating to watch how much it echoes the conversations we are having right now. So much has changed, but maybe not not so much. That's right. And of course, your many devoted viewers wouldn't let me get away with not asking you, what's next? You know, Where can they find you next, Gene? Ah, well, it's not going to be in the news business. It's going to be with an organization I have a massive amount of respect for, and that is Animal Protection of New Mexico. I'm going to be their chief program and policy officer for animals in science. They were instrumental in getting the chimpanzees released out of labs in Alamogordo and into sanctuary in Louisiana, a very big deal around here. And I'll be continuing on a lot of that kind of work. It's not work that gets applauded a whole lot because you put your head down, you work super hard and no one really sees what's going on. It's one of those things and I'm, I'm really ready for it. Well, I wish you the very, very best, Gene. Nash, much thanks. Thank you to Nash Jones and KUNM for sharing that interview with us. Now, before I sign off today, I want to say a few more things about working with Gene. As skilled as he is at conducting discussions on the line, I might be even more impressed with how connected he is with the community. Whenever I bring up NMPBS with anyone in this state, Gene Grant is the first thing out of their mouth, and it usually takes less than a second for them to blurt out his name. Gene's been a calming presence on our air for nearly two decades, and he will be missed, as we've heard from a wave of viewer feedback already after his last show Friday. We want you to know that we feel the same way, but we promise that we will carry out the same thoughtful coverage that Gene made look so easy for so many years. For one last time, thank you, Gene. Now, if you want to go look back at some of those segments that Gene mentioned from his final show, just go to the New Mexico and Focus YouTube page, where we've reposted some of his favorite interviews, including one-on-one -on -one discussions with NewsHour legends Jim Lehrer and Gwen Eiffel. For now, follow our pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube throughout the week, and you can give us feedback or just stay up to date when we post previews and news items leading up to our show on Friday night. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, August 14th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.